The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. Luke, in the 14th chapter, and reading from the 15th verse to the 24th verse, verses 15 to 24, in the 14th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke. And when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then said he unto him, A certain man made a great supper, and bad many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must go, needs go, and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and showed his lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you, that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. Now, we are considering tonight, therefore, this second parable, which is found recorded in this 14th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke. Last Sunday night, we consider together the previous one. Now, we are looking at this chapter for this reason, that we have our Lord here dealing with what is, after all, the most important question and problem in the whole of life, and that is, why it is that men and women refuse him and refuse his great and glorious salvation. That's the tragedy that stands out on the very face and surface of the New Testament. Our Lord came into a world of sin and shame. He said that he had come to seek and to save that which was lost. He had come to bless it. And yet what the world did with its greatest benefactor was to say, away with him, crucify him. And they put him to death. Now, I say that this is not only a great problem in the New Testament, it is the standing problem of all the ages and the centuries. Look at our world, even as it is tonight. We see the problems. Everybody's aware of them. I'm not only thinking of the wars we've had, the wars that they seem to be preparing for. I'm not thinking merely of the disturbances in so many countries tonight. I'm thinking also of the unhappiness and the misery, the breakdown in morals, the pressing problems, the mounting problems. Now there is life. Mankind is in trouble, it's ill at ease, and it's unhappy. Here is a message from God in the person of his own son, offering 
a great and a glorious salvation. And yet, it is still as it was when he was here in the days of his flesh. Men and women refuse him and reject him. They do exactly what the people did in this parable. Now, I say that there's no greater question than that. There's no greater problem. What is it that makes men and women behave in such a manner? If he had come into the world to blast us and to destroy us and to condemn us, we'd understand this. But as he said so frequently, he hadn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And he went about doing good. He never did anybody any harm. His deeds were always deeds of compassion. And yet this is how they treated him. Regarded him as an enemy. And failed to avail themselves of what he offered them so graciously and so freely. Now, my dear friends, this is surely the most urgent and pressing problem confronting the human race at this moment. Well, now, our Lord himself deals with that very problem in this chapter. Now, we considered the first reason last Sunday night. There he showed us quite plainly that many people reject this great salvation of his simply because they've got a, an entirely wrong and false view of themselves. You remember those people that he talks about, he put forth a parable to those which were bidden when he marked how they chose out the chief room, saying unto them, When thou art bidden of any men to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than, than thou be bidden, and he that bade thee and him come and say unto thee, Give this man place, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. Then he winds it up by saying, Whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. The first reason, then, was the one dealt with there. That mankind refuses this salvation because of its completely false estimate of itself. Very well. Now then, we move on tonight to this second parable in this chapter, the one that I've just read to you. What's the message here? How do we understand this parable? Now, it seems to me that the key to the parable is found in the 15th verse, the first verse that I read to you. When one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, namely what I've just been reminding you of, the parable that our Lord had just spoken, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And it was because that man said that that our Lord spoke this parable. Then said he unto him, and he spoke this parable about these people who with one consent began uh, to make excuse. Now then, what sort of a man was this who made this remark? This man who says, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Well, he's obviously a man who is concerned about the kingdom of God. He's interested in the kingdom of God. And he wants to be in the kingdom of God. And indeed we can go further and we can say that he has no doubt at all that he is going to eat bread in the kingdom of God. He's obviously one of the people invited to this feast at which our Lord was present. He was invited by one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day. And he, this was one of these people who were invited and who probably had put himself to sit in one of the best seats. And uh, as he listens to our Lord, he says, Wonderful. Blessed are they that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. He was one of these Pharisees. 
They believed in the kingdom of God, and they had no doubt at all that they were going to be in it. They believed that when the kingdom of God came, there would be a great feast. That's what he means. And he says, oh, that's going to be a wonderful day when the kingdom of God shall have come. And I hope to be there eating this bread in the kingdom of God. Now, I suggest to you that that was the condition of this man. He was one of these men who was interested in religion, wants the benefits of religion, and is quite happy about himself and is sure that he is going to inherit this kingdom and that he's going to spend his eternity with God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit in the presence of the holy angels. I suggest that this man is a man who more or less takes his salvation for granted. He's interested, he's concerned, he wants this. And yet, you see, he's all wrong. How do I know that? Well, I know that because of the way in which uh, our Lord uh, dealt with him. I know that because of this parable which our Lord spoke to the men. Here's the man who makes this remark, and then our Lord said unto him, and he speaks this parable about these people who with one consent began to make excuse. In other words, our Lord understood this man and his mentality. He doesn't merely listen to his words. He listens to the mind that is behind them. He listens to the spirit in which they're said. Our Lord knew men, we are told, at the beginning of John's Gospel. He doesn't need anybody to tell him about men. He knew what was in men. And he was able to read men's thoughts. And he was able to unmask them. Here's a man who on the surface seems to be saying the most excellent thing a man can ever say. Yet our Lord is utterly displeased with him. He dislikes what the man says. And he delivers him uh, not only a solemn warning, but really a striking condemnation. So, you see, we've got to interpret our parable in the light of this man's outlook and attitude. Indeed, I agree with those who say that the beginning of the 16th verse should be, not then said he unto them, but he said unto him. The contrast, the man says, you see, blessed are they that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he, the Lord, said unto him, listen. And then there comes the parable. Well, very well, the purpose of the parable is, you see, is to deal with the kind of outlook that you get in that sort of men. Now, there is no doubt at all that primarily our Lord here, of course, was concerned with the case of the Jews. The Jews were the people, as I've reminded you, and especially these Pharisees and scribes and doctors of the law, they were the religious people and the religious leaders. And as I say, they were looking forward to the coming of the kingdom of the, of the Messiah. And they assumed that they'd be in the chief places in that kingdom when it came. Uh, primarily, our Lord was dealing with the case of the Pharisees. And he was out to expose their whole position. And what he's really saying is this. He says, you Pharisees, you men who speak so pompously and apparently so wonderfully about the kingdom of God and about eating bread in the kingdom of God, you're not going to be in it. But the people whom you despise, the publicans and sinners, are going to be in it 
Indeed, even the Gentiles are going to be in it. That's what he's really saying. The men who've been invited, the Jews, the nation of God, the people who'd got the scriptures who were waiting for the Messiah, they're outside. Who's inside? The common people who heard him gladly. And indeed, the Gentiles, the people of the hedges and the hedgerows and the mere bypaths of life. So it is indeed a tremendous prophetic statement by our blessed Lord as to what was actually going to happen. And of course it did happen. It was the Jews who crucified their own Messiah. And they're outside the church and the kingdom of God. And it's the Gentiles who came in. Our Lord here is uttering a very great prophetic utterance. But in addition to that, he is laying down a very great and vital principle that is as true for us tonight as it was in the case of these Pharisees to whom it was first of all spoken and for whom it was primarily meant. And that's the thing that we should be concerned about, the principle that is here enunciated by our Lord. Well, what is it? Well, it's this. He here is dealing with the case of people who are concerned about religion. They're interested in it. And indeed, it can be said of them that they want it. They're people who believe in God and they want to know God and they want to enjoy the benefits of salvation and they want to go to heaven. And yet, according to our Lord, their whole position may be utterly and entirely hopeless. And they may, they will find themselves at the end outside the kingdom with the door shut against them. Now, I've been saying that this is a very solemn matter, and it is a solemn matter. That's the message of this parable. Now, the terms of the parable, I think, prove that my exposition of it uh, is not only right, but that it must be right. You see, this is the position of these people. Here is a man who makes a great supper. At least, he decides to make a great supper. And he announces that he is going to do so. He then sends out invitations to a number of people, telling them on such and such a, at such and such a time, I am hoping to make a great supper, and I'd very much like you to come and join me at the supper. He sends out an invitation to them. This was the custom in those days. You first of all made a, your decision about the, the meal. You then sent out a preliminary invitation. Then when the time came, and when you were in a position actually to make your supper, you sent out a second invitation, a kind of reminder. The first preliminary invitation, and then the actual invitation in which you say, come, for all things are now ready. They were not ready when you sent out the first invitation, but by now, they're all ready. Now, this is the person we are dealing with, you see. Here are people who have accepted the first invitation. A certain man made a great supper and bad many. He sent out the invitation. Then he sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were already bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. Very well. Here's the kind of person we're dealing with. They have accepted the first invitation. Why? Well, because they are interested. Oh, yes, when the invitation came, they said, well, now, how nice of him to send me an invitation. Oh, I'd like to do this very much. Oh, and so you send back your reply, and you say, yes, I, I hope to be there. They're interested, they're attracted, they're concerned, they want to be there. 
Now, you see, we're not dealing here with people who have nothing to do with it and who say, keep you, your invitation to yourself, I'm not interested. Keep your invitation and your supper. Most certainly I'm not coming. No, 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 that's not the position at all. You see, there are people like that. And apparently 90% of the people in this country tonight are in that position. I'm not concerned with them tonight. I'm concerned with these. Who accept the first invitation. They're interested in religion. They say they want to believe in God and to know God. And they want to be blessed by God. They accept the invitation, the general invitation. And yet, you see, the whole point is this, that when the second comes and the reminder of the first, they all, with one consent, began to make excuse. And they didn't go. Now, that's the thing with which our Lord is dealing here. What's the principle? Well, it's this. The main trouble with the people we were dealing with last Sunday night was that they were completely wrong in their ideas of themselves. The trouble with these people is that they're completely wrong and fail to understand the real nature of salvation. That's the trouble here. You see, it isn't only one thing, it's a number of things, and our Lord puts his emphasis upon this and that. We are guilty of them all together, but some in particular, some more than others in certain particular respects. Very well then, here is the message as I see it. Here in this book I've got a great message of salvation. Here is a book that has been confronting the human race for nearly 20 centuries. Here is a message that has been preached. What is it? Oh, it's this great message of salvation. It is this great offer of salvation that God has sent out to mankind. He's a called preachers to deliver it. How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach except they be sent, says the Apostle Paul. And God has given to the church preachers to proclaim the message, to give the invitation. And God is tonight sending out this invitation to men and women. He says, come, I'm offering you everything that you need in the Son of my love. The great message, the great offer of salvation is sent out to all. But the fact is that all are not saved. All are not found at the feast. And all will not be found with God in the glory everlasting in eternity. This is the message. There are many who seem to be interested who will not be there. There are many who actually assume that they're going to be there and who can say with this man, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. How wonderful it will be to be with God and to be with Christ, they say. What a wonderful thing, what a good and an excellent thing religion is, Christianity is. But they don't belong to it. They won't be in the feast. The final word to them is this, I say unto you, that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. Now, my dear friends, this comes to us all as a personal question, doesn't it? You wouldn't be here if you hadn't got some interest in religion. You wouldn't be here on a night like this if you hadn't some concern about these matters. Your very presence proves that you're doing something unusual in this country tonight. The masses of the people are not doing this. You're interested. You're obviously interested. But I still ask you, ask you this question. Where are we really? Here's a man who says, blessed are they who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Our Lord doesn't like it. 
It's to that man he speaks this parable, and to all who are like him. Our Lord hears the words, but he's much more interested in something deeper than the words. And in order that we may test and examine ourselves, I hold this matter before you tonight. And God knows it's a matter that is not only important for tonight and for time, it's a matter that's important for the whole of eternity. Very well then, what are the lessons that are taught in this parable? Let me divide them up into general and particular. The first general lesson that I learned from this parable is this, that our attitude is much more important in God's sight than our actions. Our attitude. What matters in the last analysis is our whole attitude to God, not our particular actions. Now, of course, we all tend to think in terms of actions, don't we? And I suppose most people think that what keeps people out of the kingdom of God is that they're guilty of some great and terrible sin. Ah, oh, they say, look at the way in which they live. The thing is impossible. They're right outside, the way the Pharisees used to look at the publicans and the sinners. Interested, you see, in action. But the whole of our Lord's emphasis in this parable is just to show us that what matters is not so much our actions, but our attitude. Did you notice the excuses that these people made? This is what's so terrifying to me about this parable. Not a single one of these people was guilty of any sin as such. The first lot, they say, when the, the, the messenger comes to them, the first man said, I have bought a piece of ground and I must needs go and see it. There's nothing wrong in buying a piece of ground. There's nothing wrong in going to see a piece of ground that you've bought. And yet, you see, this is a terrible thing. This is the sort of man who is condemned by our law. Why? Well, because in sending back this reply, he is revealing his attitude to the man who is making the feast. It's a matter of attitude. You see, what is condemned in this parable is not drunkenness and adultery and murder and things like that. That's what people think, of course, especially nice, respectable people. Oh, there's uh, men who are guilty of things like that, they must be outside. But, you know, there's nothing like that here at all. His first men have done something that was perfectly legitimate. He had bought a piece of ground and he must needs go and see it. Because he's a fraud for this reason. He's obviously a man who'd already seen it, otherwise he wouldn't have bought it. He's not a fool. You don't buy a piece of ground without seeing it. That wasn't the trouble with this man. The trouble with this man was, you see, that this piece of ground had got into his soul. And he spent the whole of his time in looking at it. It wasn't that he'd heard of it and said, I'm sorry, I can't come, you know. I've made an appointment, I just must see this before I buy it. He'd already bought it. But still he wants to go back to look at it. And the same with the second man. The second man said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. Well, a man who buys oxen in order that he may plow his land without knowing whether they are good working oxen or not is, I say again, a fool. Obviously, he already knew this. But he can't wait, you see. He must go and put them in and try them out for himself. And the thing can't wait. The oxen have got into his soul. But there's nothing wrong in buying oxen. And there's nothing wrong in proving oxen. And the third man says, I have married a wife, so I cannot come. Our Lord never condemned marriage. 
The Bible doesn't condemn marriage. There's everything right about marriage. And yet, you see, these are the things that our Lord says are going to damn these people. Now, this is a great principle in the Bible. You'll find it enunciated in many, many places. There is this general opinion that the people who are outside the kingdom are some flagrant, blatant, obvious, deep sinners. But they're not according to the Bible. I think I quoted it last Sunday night. Let me quote it again. What we are told about the people before the flood was not so much that they were guilty of terrible sins, but that they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. And knew not until the flood came and carried them all away. Well, now then, my friends, the message you see in the first instance is this. What really matters is our attitude. These people are condemned not so much for doing what they did, but that in doing what they did, they were revealing their attitude to this man who was making the great supper. And here is the great fundamental principle in the whole of the Bible. What matters primarily with God is our attitude to him. Stop thinking in terms of actions. Because if you think in terms of actions, you'll talk about good people and bad people. You'll talk about great sinners and little sinners. And it's all rubbish. It is all wrong. God is concerned primarily, not about our actions, but about our attitude to him. God demands our love. It is man's independence of God that finally damns him not his particular sin. Now I'm so concerned about this at the present time. You see, we are living in a strange world. And we hear a lot, of course, and rightly so, about this terrible manifestation of sin and evil. But if I were asked to name the greatest sin in Great Britain tonight and the most damning sin, the most awful sin, I wouldn't refer to these things. These poor people who are just raving in sin. Oh, they're the publicans and sinners. There is a sense in which I see much greater hope for them than I do for certain other people. Who are those? Ah, the self-contained, respectable, nice people. Of course, they never get drunk. Of course, they don't commit adultery. They're the backbone of society. The good, decent people. And there they are, self-contained. They're not religious. Why should they be? They don't need religion. They're like the Pharisee. They give a tenth of their goods to the poor. They live this nice, clean, moral, decent life. Yes, they're interested in religion. Why, they even go to church on Easter Sunday morning. That's proof that they're interested in religion. Of course they're interested in religion. Perhaps they'll go when there's a wedding, or a funeral, or a christening. Oh, yes, they're, 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 of course, they're, they're religious people. They're, they're, they haven't cut themselves off from these. They've accepted the first invitation. Of course, they're good, nice, religious people, and they believe in God. Of course, I've never not believed in God. I've been brought up to believe, believe in God, and so on and so forth. You, you're familiar with the type. But they appear before God when it suits them. When there isn't something else that's very pressing, when they feel like it, or when they just think that they ought to do so. Now this, to me, is the damning thing. 
There are so many in this country today who feel, you see, that we no longer need religion. We're able to do it all ourselves. We're educated and so on. And you simply need more education and more royal commissions and you'll find the cause of troubles and you'll get rid of them. And we'll all be nice and decent and respectable. And we don't need God. We don't need anything. We'll all have made ourselves perfect and complacent in our decency. That's the kind of person that's dealt with here. And what our Lord says to these people is just this. God isn't interested in your actions. But what he is interested in is your total attitude to him. Secondly, the greatest insult to God is to refuse his offer in Christ. That's the greatest insult to God. Now, look at this man who makes the great supper. He decides to do this and he sends out his preliminary invitations and these people accept them. And he is delighted and he's pleased. Then when the vital moment comes, he's got everything ready, he's gone to this great trouble, he sends out his servant and says, come along, everything's now ready, we're ready to begin. And with one consent they begin to make excuse. And they give these paltry excuses. And the man is very angry, we are told, yes, because he's deeply hurt. These people have insulted him. That's what they're really doing. You see, it isn't the value of the supper. It's the personal insult. They're telling him what they think of him. They're sending back his invitation. They're refusing it. Now, here again is another very vital principle, which is so often forgotten. There is no greater insult, I say, to God than to refuse his offer. To disobey God is a terrible thing. To break the Ten Commandments, it's a terrible thing. To be guilty of anything that is a transgression of God's holy law, there's nothing too terrible to say about it. But you know, there's something worse than that. And that is to refuse God's offer of salvation. To refuse what God has done in his own Son. Now that's the great thing that our Lord brings out here. And notice, there is another part of this very thing which is most interesting. When, uh, when this man sends out his servant to say, come, for all things are now ready, they all with one consent began to make excuse. Listen, the first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. I'm sorry I can't come on this occasion. Of course, I, 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 I was greatly touched by the invitation and I was flattered and I fully intended coming, but I'm so sorry. I just can't come tonight. Please, have me excused. I've got this, I, I bought this bit of ground. I, I, I must go and see it. Please, have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to prove them. I pray thee. Have me excused. How polite they are. How nice they are. They say, well, of course, you, you do understand the position, don't you? We'd, we'd dearly like to come, but, sorry, just on this occasion, we can't manage it. The third man is, is different. He's blunt. He just says, I have married a wife. He doesn't say, I pray thee, therefore have me excused. He says, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. But this is what's important. Whether the refusal is polite or whether it's rude and blunt doesn't make the slightest difference. You see, this is where the devil gets us, isn't it? We think that as long as we are polite in our refusal to God, that somehow it makes a difference. We say, I pray, have me excused. 
What a terrible man this third man is, he says. I therefore cannot come. He doesn't say, why do, please excuse me on this occasion. But you see, our Lord says it's completely irrelevant. doesn't matter how you say it. You can be the most polite man in the presence of God, but if you don't do what he tells you, you're outside. You're insulting him. You're refusing his gospel. You can praise Christ and the gospel, but if you don't accept, you're insulting him quite as much as the man who damns and blasts it. Doesn't make the slightest difference. There is no greater insult to God than to refuse his offer of salvation in his only begotten, dearly beloved Son. And my third general principle is this one. That we reveal our attitude to God and his offer of salvation in Christ by our lives, not by what we say, not by vague desires and general feelings, but by what we do. Here's a man who says, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. That's what he says. That's the man who accepts the first invitation and sends back the reply saying, Thank you very much. I most certainly want to come, and I deeply appreciate the honor you do me by asking me. But then when the second invitation comes, Asks to be excused. You see, it doesn't matter what we say, my dear friends. What matters is what we do and what we are. You say you're interested in religion. You're interested in God. You're interested in salvation. You say you like singing hymns. You say you like listening to sermons. But what I ask you tonight is this. What are you telling God about all this in your life? Politeness is of no value. Accepting invitations doesn't count. Saying these things about eating bread in the kingdom of God is of no avail and doesn't matter at all. The question is, what are you saying to God in your life, in the totality of your being? That's the thing that matters. Nothing else. These people, by with one consent making excuse, they're telling him exactly what they think of him and his great supper. So that nothing matters, I say, but the expression of our lives. Oh, there are many people who talk about religion and are ready to argue and to debate about it. My dear friend, what God wants to know is this. What are you doing with your life in terms of him? What are you really saying to him? It's so easy to talk and to say things. What's the state of your heart? Have you given your heart to God? He doesn't want your lips. He wants you. He wants the throne of your life. He doesn't want your good opinions. He doesn't want your polite remarks about him. He doesn't want your praise of him. He certainly doesn't want your defense of him. But what he wants is you. He wants the throne of your being. He wants your total allegiance. And if you don't give him that, all the talk in the world will be of no value. You'll find yourself outside. That's the message of this parable. Very well, there are the general lessons. Let me hasten to put the simple, practical lessons before you. Let me ask this question. Why is it then that people refuse God's offer? That's the way in which they do it. But what makes them do it? 
Why is it true to say in this matter that the road to hell is paved with good intentions? We accept the first invitation, we intend to, but we don't. What's the matter? Why did these people with one consent begin to make excuse? It's quite simple. Here's the first. They overestimate this world and life in this world and the things of this world. You see, when it comes to the point, the first man regards his piece of ground as of greater importance than this great supper. The second man regards the five yoke of oxen and the proving of them as of greater importance than accepting this invitation to the great supper. The third man, he regards his married relationship as more important. What I mean by that is, not so much the married relationship, but that he must apparently spend every second of it in that way, and so be rude to the man whose invitation is accepted. There's nothing here, I say, against legitimate occupations. It is right that men should trade and work in professions and be engaged in the ordinary avocations of life in this world. That's perfectly all right, but what our Lord is talking about is this. It is what may be called worldly-mindedness, worldliness, living for this world, having the world in your heart, being governed and controlled by this world. This is the great message running right through the whole of the Bible. Isn't it brought out by our Lord in the parable of the sower? He tells us of seed falling, you see, into certain good ground, into a certain type of ground, but then the thorns spring up. What are these, oh, the cares and the affairs of this life? And our Lord issues a solemn warning later on in this same gospel according to St. Luke, where he tells these people to beware lest their hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and feasting and drunkenness and the cares and the affairs of this world. These are the things that endanger the soul. It's when the world enters into the heart. What our Lord condemns is that we should give ourselves to these things. What our Lord condemns is that we should regard these things as more important than the soul and our relationship to God. You see, these men are insulting, I say. What they're saying to this man is this. All right, we've accepted your invitation, but you know I can't come now. I'm absolutely obsessed by this bit of land of mine. I'm going to make a great fortune out of this. I bought it. I knew what I was doing. But you know, I must go keep on going back. I go back every night and I look at it. And I see the great building that's going to be on it. I'm making a fortune. He's gripped by this. He's living for it. So much so that he insults this man. It's not necessary to go and look at that plot of ground every single night. He could have spared one evening. It wouldn't be a long time. No, no, he can't. This is everything to him. It's more important than that. Likewise with the oxen, likewise with the wife. This is the thing our Lord is concerned about. These things are perfectly right and legitimate in life, but my dear friend, are these things more important to you than your soul and your relationship to God? Do you give these things priority over God and your eternal destiny? That's the question. Do you push your God on one side, as it were, and tell him he's got to wait, that you can't come now? Because of these things, because you're living for them and are governed by them and can't go on without them. It's a question of priorities here and nothing else. These people put all these things before the great supper and thereby... They revealed their whole view of life and their philosophy of life and their relative values in life. And this is the very thing that men and women are doing at this present time. They are putting the things of this world before God. Now these things are all right, I say. They are quite legitimate if you keep them in the right proportion. 
There's nothing wrong in looking at the television. But if you put that before worshipping God on a Sunday night, well then you're wrong like these people were. There's nothing wrong in reading certain books, if you like, for entertainment and for relaxation. But if you spend the whole of your time reading them and therefore you've got no time to read your Bible, you've got your priorities wrong. And go and work it out for yourself. We shall be working it out, God willing, next Sunday night in a still more exalted manner. But you see, even your wife isn't to come before God. You don't ask God to wait because of your wife or your husband. Not even them. Now, my friend, here it is, you see. Overestimate of this life and this world. Look at this bit of land. Look at those oxen. You know, in a few years, the land and the oxen and the wife will matter not at all to this man. When you're on your deathbed, that land won't help you. The oxen won't help you. Your wife even can't help you. The world and all its things and its kingdoms are passing away. And yet people live for them and God has to wait. That's all I'm asking you. Does God come first in your thinking, in your time, in your apportioning of everything? I know, yes, it's no use telling me, but I am interested in religion. I am a church member. I do read my Bible now and again and a bit and so on. And I do go to a place. I'm not asking you that, my dear friend. What I'm asking you is this. What is it that occupies the center of your life? What are you really living for? These people are condemned because they put this world and its things before God and the soul. What of us? Secondly, these people are condemned and they're all wrong because of their complete failure to appreciate the glory and the greatness of salvation. I say again, it's a matter of values and of priorities, isn't it? You see, these people, when the servant came with the second invitation... The man said to himself, what shall I do? Of course I'd like to go to that great supper. Well, after all, this is a bit of left. This, this is it. Now, now, this is where my fortune's coming. I can't come. Sorry. Have me excused, please. What's he saying? Well, he's saying, you see, that uh, while he's uh, quite uh, pleased and gratified at having the invitation, he doesn't regard this great supper as being as important as all that. That can wait. Another one will probably come some other time. Uh, I, I can't really stay away from this bit of land and the man with the oxen, exactly the same and the man with the wife. They're saying that, well, it's all right, it was quite all right, but uh, after all, it doesn't compare with this. They're overestimating this, they're underestimating that. And that's the thing our Lord brings out in this striking imagery, in this, in this parable. Look how he puts it. He said unto them, a certain man made... A great supper. It wasn't what you call a sort of scratch meal when you just uh, go to the refrigerator to see if there's something there. No, no. He made a great supper. That's the emphasis. And this is the whole point, you see, people don't realizing that they're refusing an invitation to a great supper. What do I mean? Well, what I mean is this. The one who's preparing it is great. What is the supper to which I'm inviting you? What is the feast to which the gospel calls you? Who's prepared it? The answer is the everlasting and eternal God. It's a great supper. You and I may 
decide to give some people a meal, we'll have a dinner. Well, it's all right, but who are we? Prime Minister asks you to go and have dinner with him in 10 Downing Street. Much more important, isn't it? But what if the Queen asks you to go and dine with her? Ah, now then, you put everything aside, don't you? This is really indeed a great supper, a great dinner. Why, the Queen of England has invited you. My dear friends, I'm inviting you to the greatest supper in the universe. Prepared by God. The plan and the purpose of God. Listen. It's not only got a great arranger and maker. Great planning has gone into this. This man makes a great supper. I can see him assembling all his staff together. He says, now, you know, I really want to make this a very great occasion. Tell me what you think. He takes their ideas. And they say, well, now, what about the courses? And they have to plan it all out. And they have to see how it will all work in. This leads to that. This comes at this. And a great supper. It involves a great deal of planning and of preparation. It's a great occasion, a great supper. Do you know what I'm talking about? Did you know that what I'm inviting you tonight was prepared before even the world was created? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit met in council to plan this great supper. There's nothing greater than this. The mind of the eternal God preparing and planning and purposing a great way of salvation. It's a great supper, my friend. It's the Godhead that's involved, the three blessed persons. And look at the thought, look at the contemplation, look at the ideas, look at all this great and glorious plan. What a great occasion. Oh, it's a great supper. You estimate the greatness of a supper partly in this, in these terms, don't you? How much does it cost? You'll see in the newspaper sometimes account of these great banquets, these great feasts. And I've read on some occasions, I read about a year ago about the wedding of the daughter of a certain well-known man. And in order to make it a truly great occasion, I think I, I was told that it had some orchids flown across the Atlantic and that they'd spent about 2,000 pounds on the flowers alone in the feast. The cost. And what was on the menu? Oh, caviar and this and that. Oh, it all cost a tremendous lot of money. No expense was saved, we are told. Nothing was considered except that it be the greatest supper that had ever been made. The cost of it all. Oh, I needn't keep you. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever considered the cost of that to which I'm inviting you tonight? This is what it costs. The eternal Father sends his only begotten, dearly beloved Son from the courts of heaven into this sinful evil world. What did it cost the Son? It cost him self-humiliation. Though he was equal with God, he counted it not robbery to be equal with God. He didn't touch at it. He laid it aside. He humbled himself and was born in the form of a man, the likeness of man, the form of a servant, born as a babe in Bethlehem. He who had created the whole universe and who sustained it all lies as a helpless babe. That's what it's cost him. And then he lives in utter poverty in this world and endured the contradiction of sinners against himself. For 33 years he was buffeted and spat upon and argued with by these clever people. But what am I talking about? 
He took him to a cross on Calvary's hill. And there he laid down his life. It cost him his life. His blood was shed. His body was broken. He died. He was buried in a grave. That's the cost. That's the price. The precious blood of Christ. Not gold and silver or precious metals or such things. But the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He had bought with a price. And that's the price that has been paid in the preparation of this great supper to which I'm inviting you. And then, my dear friends, consider the fare. Consider the menu. I could keep you to midnight talking about this if I'd got the energy and the strength. And I trust, well, I know this, that every Christian, his heart would be ravished as I would go on describing the glory of this great supper. Think of the fare. Think of the food. Think of the provision. Everything that you can stand in need of, it's all there. There's nothing that you can ever ask for, but that you'll find it on that menu. Oh, I'll tell you some of the items. Forgiveness. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. I have loved thee with an everlasting love. God, blotting out your sins as a thick cloud, casting them into the sea of his forgetfulness in spite of what you've been, giving you free pardon and forgiveness, giving you a new life, giving you a new relationship to him, giving you his companionship, giving you power to live in this world while you're left in it, preparing for you the glory everlasting and your eternal inheritance. Who can describe it? This is what our Lord himself said about it. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. He invites all. He says, I am the bread of life. He said to the woman of Samaria, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever shall drink of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Everything you need in the way of solids, it's all there. He's the bread of life. Everything you need in the way of liquids, it's all there. He's a fountain of life. And he says, Whosoever cometh unto me shall never hunger, and he that believeth in me shall never thirst. And any man who's ever been to this banquet joins with the psalmist in saying, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Where does he lead me? Oh, to the green pastures, beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. There's nothing that is missing. It's a great supper. For souls redeemed, for sins forgiven, for means of grace and hopes of heaven, Father, what can to thee be given who givest all? The great feast. Listen to one of our great hymn writers trying to put it, old John Newton again. See the streams of living waters springing from eternal love. Well supply thy sons and daughters and all fear of want remove. Who can faint while such a river ever flows? Their thirst persuades grace, which like the Lord, the giver, never fails from age to age. That's something of the character of the feast. 
That's the thing that men and women refuse because of the bit of ground or because of the yoke of oxen or because of a wife, because of the good opinion of the people in the office or your fellow students or the men in the shop next door, because of what your family may say, because of the praise of people, because you're holding on to this little world which may be blasted to nothing at any moment and leave you with nothing. Because of that, this is what you're refusing. Prepared by the Godhead. Paid for by the blood of the Son of God and His broken body and all the glories that belong to it. Isn't this sheer madness? But you see, we've got our priorities wrong, haven't we? We overestimate this world and we underestimate so tragically the blessings of salvation, this great feast. Let me say a final word. The final failure is to completely fail to see that salvation is entirely of the grace of God. You know, it almost breaks me down to realize this, that God should make this feast at all. That he should make the supper. Why should he? What do we deserve? Do we deserve this supper? Do we deserve this repast, this feast? What have we done? We've done nothing but sin against him and spit in his face and rebel against him. But in spite of us, he's decided to make the great supper. He sends salvation in his son. It's all of the free grace of God. He was moved by nothing but his own heart of love. And all men does by nature is to refuse it. Man is dead in trespasses and sins. He's blinded by the God of this world. He sees nothing in salvation. He thinks indeed it's quite funny that people should still believe it. In the 20th century, all man does is to refuse God. Have me excused, he says, politely or bluntly, doesn't matter. He's blinded by the God of this world. But, let me say this, here as it is in the teaching. Man is responsible for that refusal. And man is held responsible for that refusal. And men shall be punished for that refusal. I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. This is what makes the thing so tremendous and so solemn. I preach this gospel to you. And if you reject it, you're responsible for your rejection. And when you find yourself in hell, it's your refusal that's put you there. But salvation is altogether of God. It is he who has made all the preparations and all the provisions. The message of the Bible is entirely about what God has done. Man doesn't come into it at all. He hasn't had a finger in the pie. He's done nothing. He can do nothing. He only repels, rebels and rejects and refuses. All the salvation from beginning to end is of God. He planned it. He sent his son. They've done it all. You know, I'll even go further. This parable makes me go further. Salvation, I say, is altogether and entirely of the grace of God. He not only makes the feast and all the preparations. Do you know this, that there'd be nobody in the feast if it wasn't that God brought them in? Not a man. If our salvation ultimately depended upon us, We'd all be damned. 
The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The natural mind is enmity against God, is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. That's man by nature. And there'd be nobody at this great supper, there'd be nobody in heaven at the end, were it not that God even persuades us to accept the invitation. Listen. To these first people, the message is, Come, for all things are ready. They refuse. So then the master says to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and say to them, Come in. Not at all. Bring in. Bring in. The poor, the maimed, the halt, and the blind. Bring them in. The servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. The Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in. Now, don't misunderstand that word, compel. What it really means is constrain them. And it means constrain them by moral and logical constraint. It doesn't mean that you dragoon them in. It doesn't mean that you drive them in with whips. It doesn't mean that you drive them in at the point of the sword. The Roman Catholic Church has tried that in past ages. The Mohammedans have done exactly the same thing. But there is no compulsion in the gospel of Christ. This is moral suasion, moral persuasion, moral and mental constraint. And what that means in other language, of course, is the work of the Holy Spirit. Every man is saved because the Spirit of God begins to deal with him. He disturbs him. The man doesn't understand it. He doesn't even want to be interested, but he can't help it. The thing keeps on coming back to him. He's unhappy and ill at ease. He finds himself listening to a sermon. He finds himself reading the... He finds himself talking to Christians. He doesn't want to, but he can't stop it. What is this? Oh, this is the constraint of the Spirit of God. Leading, picking out a man, convicting him. Answering all his questions, converting him. You see, this is very interesting here. He says to the servant, go out and bring them in. Still there is room. He says, go out, compel them to come in. What's it mean? Well, it's this, you see. Here are these poor people, the halt and the lame and the blind and even worse people, the hedges and the hedgerows, the publicans and sinners, the blatant sinners, this man comes to them and says, Come, look here, my master's made a great supper, and he wants you to come in. And these people turn to him and they say, But it can't be meant for us. Look at us. We are clad in rags and in tatters. We haven't got decent robes. We are not washed. We are not fit. We can't possibly be intended. You must be making a mistake. No, no, said the messenger. You come along. You don't know my master. My master's not only prepared a great supper for you, he's got means and methods to make you fit to take it. You come along, don't worry about your appearance. He's got a wonderful bath there, and you can bath yourself and he'll wash you. And don't worry about your rags and tatters. He's got some marvelous robes there. They've all been designed after the pattern of the robe of his own son. Come along, he's got a wardrobe. It's an endless wardrobe. Come along, come as you are. And so they persuaded them, they constrained them, they reasoned with them, and they showed the full sufficiency of his glorious preparation. That is exactly, of course, what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. I am here to persuade you, to beseech you, to pray with you. And the message God has given me for you tonight is simply this. 
Come for all things are ready.